in the beginning, when God uh, was creating the world, when uh, each day, each creative endeavor, uh, when the steam was still coming off the water, when the animals were still catching their breath, when the very basics of life were still taking, when life itself was still young, God looked at what God saw and said, pretty good. You know, if I don't say so myself, pretty darn good. If you've ever, ever opened the scriptures and you started uh, reading the Bible, um, the, full, the full version, unabridged, and um, you checked out the first chapter of the first book, you'd, you'd know that this is like, this is how the story begins. God, God, there's a story of creation, and each day God says, this is good. And, and this is first in the scriptures on purpose. Um, and it forms for us, people of faith, uh, a very basic foundation, because here's what happens. Chapter 1, chapter 2, you get this really beautiful uh, narrative, very short, beautiful narrative of, of this creative endeavor. And then moving into chapter 3, humans screw it all up. And we're not surprised by that, are we? I mean, really? Um, I'm a, a parent, and uh, Finn, you know, born of this world, innocent, and it does not take long for him to be less innocent and just a little annoying and sometimes even rotten. And, you know, it's just, it's just like, this just, we're, we mess things up and, and God still loves us. But that's how the story goes. But, but, be, but the story doesn't start in chapter 3. The story starts in chapter 1 and chapter 2 with creation in this sense that God says it is good. And so it, it answers a question that has riddled throughout humanity over the ages, a question that's brought up in chapter 3 or short thereafter, or a question that poems have been written about and stories and sagas and discourse have been discussed, and it's a simple question. Is it worth saving? world's broken. Everything from natural disasters to hurricanes to cancer that riddles the bodies of people we love to hatred, time to bitterness, to just the nastiness of human relationships at times. And, and, and it raises a question. Maybe it's not a question you've ever asked, but people have asked this question. Is it worth saving? Which comes to another question, just as valid. Is it possible? You know? Like, is, is this even possible? Can we actually change the world? So I'm gonna, I want to start, I want to start with a very bold and basic assumption as we kick off this series. And the assumption is this. One, it's worth it. It's worth changing the world. And two, it's possible. Now, we could debate all day long whether those two things are true. We're not going to end this series. That's just the assumption I'm starting with. One, that at the core of God's creation is goodness. And that it's, that it's worth it. It's worth changing the world for the better. And and this, this, I will just show my cards. This is how naive I am. I believe it's possible. I really do. That I believe change for the better is actually, actually possible. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm excited to just kind of dig into this topic, how to change the world. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis starts out with God's creation. And soon it becomes this drama and this saga of, of human relationships messing things up. 
And it's a long story. The story of Scripture is a long story that covers thousands of years, hundreds of people's stories, dozens and dozens of locations, all countless different authors and retelling of the stories and sagas and poems. The Bible is, in a lot of ways, this library. Um, Bibliotheca, a Latin word meaning library. It's not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of books that I want to suggest in this series tries to capture the way in which God has been trying to change the world, to set things right, to make things good. And, and I want to suggest that like all of these different stories is these of God moving and working in different people's lives is a subtle part of this master strategy to bring about change, often a lot slower than we're comfortable with. And I, and I want to suggest that the strategies that God uses in this biblical narrative are still relevant today and that God is still at work. So when God created the world, um, and uh, we uh, began in chapter 3 to, to mess things up, um, if the, the first 11 chapters of this story of Genesis 1 through 11, the first 11 chapters really is this very short, and if you're honest, very depressing story of how far the story, uh, we could get from the way things are meant to be. It's a story where we find uh, just how bad it can get. In fact, it gets so bad that God decides to, to start over, uh, you know, just clean slate. This is the story uh, that we, the story of the flood. Uh, great uh, little story that's often in children's book, terrible children's book story, if you think about it. It's, a lot of people die in the story. Like, I don't know, don't read your kids the story. There's animals and they're cute when they're cartoons, I get that, but... This really intense story, and in a lot of ways in the biblical narrative, it's like this, it's answering the question, what if we just start it over? What if we hit, you know, the computer's not working, turn it off, turn it back on, right? That's, that's the function of this story, is this idea, what would happen if we just start it over? And they do, and guess what happens after this hard reset? It doesn't get better. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it just keeps going, and it's not any better. And so, nothing changes. Humans go the way they always go. They keep hurting each other, taking advantage of each other. It doesn't get any better. So, what's interesting about the story of the flood, though, is the flood is almost like God is dealing with this problem, that the world is, this problem that the world is um, becoming. He's almost like God's dealing with it from, from a distance. It's like God's solution with the flood is like the 30,000 vantage points. Like, I'm going to fix this from way up here. Like, literally, I'm going to drop rain on the earth. Like, and you read the story of the fairy, God's not really engaged. He, he sort of tells Noah to build an ark, but there isn't a relationship or anything. It's very God is distant. And what happens with the story of the flood is you almost realize that, that God is, comes to this place where his, his strategy begins to shift, and he says, you know, like, we can't fix this from way up here. We've got to become more engaged. And so the first 11 chapters, you see this, and then the story shifts. And we're introduced to someone by the name of Abram, later to be called Abraham. And what's great about this is God actually, he comes and he actually all of a sudden sits down with Abraham and they have dinner together. It's a great little story in the form of three strangers. And God starts making plans with Abraham. They like start dating and then eventually form a, a covenant they enter into this relationship and this agreement and this sense of community. Like God goes from like dealing with all of the world to just saying, I'm going to invest in a single individual. That's the story of Scripture. And it, and, it, and it shows this shift in God's strategy. God goes from dealing with the world at large to zooming in 
on one person. It's a very interesting move, very interesting chess move when you think about the story of Scripture as God's strategy for changing the world. And it's not that God has given up in the world. It's just God has revealed what his strategy is. God would change the world not by dealing with the world at large, but by dealing with a person and their kids, and then eventually their kids' kids, and their kids' kids' kids. And this family would become a nation, and then God would use this nation to change the world. This is the strategy. Genesis 12, right after those first 11 chapters of Genesis, this is what God says. He lays it out. He tells you what his strategy is. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And then he says, verse, uh, he says, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. He tells you right away. He's like, I'm going to, my new strategy, I'm going to work through an individual and their family, and that's how I'm going to change the world. I haven't given up in the world. I'm just adjusting the strategy. From there on, Abraham, uh, God walks with his people. They grow into a family. They grow into a nation. They become slaves in Egypt. Um, maybe you've read the, the book or, the, or seen the movie. And uh, they become this nation, and they leave Egypt, and they're taken out of slavery, and they move into this homeland once again. And along this journey, God shows up over and over again. But he shows up in this really personal way. He, he visits Abraham. They have food. He wrestles with Jacob. He, he gives dreams to Joseph. And, and God visits Moses in this burning bush. God gets really personal. And that is, I think, our first basic principle in changing the world according to God. The first big lesson is not the only lesson, but it's the lesson that a lot of other lessons are built on. And it's the hardest lesson I think we'll ever tackle if we want to take change seriously. And it's this. If you want to change the world, you have to change people. People have to change. Their hearts, their perspectives, their goals, their ambitions, people have to change. Which... As a pastor, let me make this personal, which is another way of saying we have to change. I have to change. No change is effective without real change inside of a person's heart. That's where change begins. It's not where it ends, but it where it begins. So I want to look at a story, a particular story, where God showed up in this saga, early, early uh, part of this saga of God, um, where God shows up in the life of somebody, in the life specifically of Moses. And I think it's going to actually, you'll see as we open up the scriptures and read it together, you're going to see it's just dripping with these principles on how we can change the world, how we can, I think, make the world a better place. Um, so Moses, as you know uh, or don't know, Moses uh, seen God in a burning bush. He went to Egypt and delivered the people, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. Um, and after God showing up in this powerful way, they're finally released and they wander to the wilderness and they find this oasis. This is where we pick up the story. They're in this oasis. They're resting. They've, they've been on this journey. They were just like not that long ago. They were slaves in Egypt and had to deal with all these different plagues to get out of there. And now they're finally through the wilderness. They're in this little oasis. They're hanging out. That's where starting to be a community for the first time. They're not at their destination. They're just this little rest stop. And that's where our story is found. If you, wanna, if you have a Bible or a smartphone, you want to follow along. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 18. It'll be on the screen as well, so uh, no worries there. But we're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to probably spend, uh, go through most of the chapter. So Moses, he's delivered the people from slavery, and this isn't just a few people. This is a lot of people. This is a small nation, um, and they find themselves at the oasis. They find themselves starting to be a community, and this is what happens in Exodus 18, 1 through 6. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian... And father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. 
After Moses had sent away his wife, Zephora, his father-in-law, Jethro, received her, three, uh, received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, uh, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Elizer, uh, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. And Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. Okay. Here, here he Moses, before he ever went to Egypt, he was living out in the middle of nowhere. He meets this girl. They fall in love. They get married. Then Moses is sent to Egypt. And now they've delivered the people from Egypt, and they've had a place where they could rest a little bit. So his wife decides to go home to see her parents. This is entirely reasonable, right? And... Um, uh, and so they're going to come back, and in classic father-in-law fashion, he, you know, he shows up, and he's like, hey, I heard things have been going well, um, without really having any context for what's actually been going on. Like, Jethro wasn't there for any of this, right? He's just, he's a Midian. He's, he, he only has heard about it. And um, so they show up, and, uh, but before we move on to the story, we, we, we can't gloss over two points. The author makes a point to tell us not only that Moses has two sons, not only what their names are, but why they have those names. And names, of course, very significant in the biblical text. He has these two sons. Son number one, Gershom, which means I am a foreigner. And Eliezer, which means God is my helper. Now, these names uh, represent not only uh, their journey as a people, Moses' experience of life to this point, but I think, give us two more lessons change on how to change the world. Lesson first is God changes the world through immigrants. God changes the world through immigrants. I mean, literally in this story, they were foreigners. They had they kind of lived here for a while. Their family lived here. They moved here. They're very nomadic. They eventually ended up in Egypt where they became slaves and they immigrated towards the promised land. They were in the wilderness for a while. And so literally, he's like, I am a foreigner. I've, I've lived in these different places that weren't my home. I'm headed towards the promised land, but, but I'm not there yet. And, and so God is literally going to use this people, the people of God, the people of Israel, the people that Moses is currently leading. He's going to use them to change the world, and they're, they're immigrants. But even once they arrive at the homeland, the promised land, and they maybe settle in, and they're not immigrants anymore. It's their country or whatever. Even then, this principle lives on. It's this deeper principle. This idea that this world is not our own, that the, that the nations around us and the people around us, the ways of the world aren't meant to be our ways, that we should live as if we're immigrants. That would get me in trouble with a certain group of people, I would imagine. But, but you see this in Scripture. This is how uh, Peter says it. Peter says, Dear friends, if you are foreigners and temporary residents in the world, I am encouraging you to keep away from the desires of your corrupt nature. Here's the point. He, the point is this, and this is, this is a really important point if you want to change the world. You can't change the world if you live like everyone else. Can't do it. It, it, just, it doesn't produce any change. 
If you just if you are adopting all of the principles and values of that's what the immigrant is such a beautiful metaphor because they are living with a different set of values, a different set of culture, and they bring that in, and it changes the world from everything the way they they might cook or whatever, um, the way they live, the values that they have. It, it brings about change, and influence is built around being different. So if you want to change the world. If you like the world the way the world is right now, then just do what you've always done and do what everyone else is doing, and you will support that. If you don't think the world has quite arrived, and you still believe that it's worth changing, one of the first things is to not live like everyone else. It's this idea that immigrants are holy, and holy is this churchy word that gets misunderstood. It literally means to be set apart. It means that there is this over here, and holy is when you're not that. It's the other and there's, so there's a sense that we're called to be holy. The people of God were called to be holy, which didn't mean they were like holier than thou, like how we would use the word. It meant that, no, we're meant to be different. One of the words in scripture we'll see is peculiar, fit in. So if you're serious about changing the world, ask yourself this question, how well do you fit in? And you fit in really well, then I don't know. And this is good news for those who don't fit in, isn't it? It's, this is kind of, this is like, and I have to remind myself of this, because I don't usually fit in. I get myself in all kinds of trouble. I, there are very few circles where I'm like, yeah, those are my people. Every once in a while, I run across a group of people, and I'm like, those are my people. You guys, a lot of, you know, I don't know everyone in here, but a lot of you are my people. But a lot of other places, I'm like, these are not my people. <laughs> I don't fit in. And you know what? Like, that's really discouraging. But, you know, God has always used people who don't fit in to bring about change, to influence. That's the, that's the first lesson. The second lesson that we get from son number uh, one is changes the world through foreigners. The second one is God helps us change the world. So here's the thing. If you want to live differently, if you want to go against the grain, if you want to try to do something new, you want to build something new, create something new, establish something new, friends, I will tell you from personal experience, the entire witness of the Christian faith over 2,000 years, the Jewish faith before that, and all of the witness of Scripture, I'm telling you this, if you want to do something new, you can't do it by yourself. You just can't. It is too hard. It's too hard. I, like, and I'm a fairly confident guy. I'm telling you, it's too hard. Moses says, God is my help. I can't do it myself. Now, I believe God wants to change. And I, I believe that God wants to do that by partnering with us. I, I think we have a part to play. But we need God's help. So that's what the sons teach us. Before we even get into the story, we, we're told about these two sons, two really profound principles on how to change the world. Now let's find out what the story actually is going on. So it says this. Jethro, along with his grandkids, the foreigner and the helper, um, that's, that's their kid's name. Imagine that was your kid. Hey, foreigner. Hey, helper. Um, and Moses' wife, they show up, and Jethro's heard about the good things. Hey, I've heard things have been going pretty good, um, which is a great thing to say. And then verse 7, this is what happens. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Totally normal thing. This is a cultural, you know, not weird. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord saved them from us. He, he tells the story of their immigration, he, he, of leaving Egypt and specifically how God guided them along the way. He tells them the story that his kids are named after, that, 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 that they're a foreigner, but God has delivered them and helped them. And, and Jethro, he gets to hear, he has heard that things are going well, but now he gets to hear all the details. Moses tells him the whole story. Moses becomes what we call in the church an evangelist. 
An evangelist in the Greek means what? Bearer of good news. He says, here, hear this good news. Hear, hear what the good things that God has done in my life. Moses, that's what he's doing here. And let me just say this. This story that Moses tells Jethro, it has this ripple effect. We're going to see in just a little bit that impacts Jethro and then eventually the larger community in ways you can never imagine, which leads us, I think, to the next principle, the next lesson on how God likes to change the world. God changes the world through story. I mean that in two ways. The stories we live and the stories we tell. God shows up and does stuff in people's lives, and that changes their life and has a ripple effect on other people's life. But then the people who've experienced that story will tell other people about what God has done, and that testimony itself also brings about change. Friends, there is no better way to change someone's heart than with stories. That's why the Bible's full of them. That's why Jesus taught in parables. You could argue with me all day long about the policies of immigration. It sounds like that's what they're going to do Thursday night over beer. It sounds fun. It sounds great. I, 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 hope, I hope to go. We got our free store meeting, so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, but you know, I really think I'd enjoy that. But here's, here's what I'll tell you. If I meet someone and I hear their story, someone who's an immigrant, I'm done. I'm in. You know, I can't. Personal accounts are too powerful for me. It's just too influential. Well, you can debate all along about the policy, but I meet somebody, changes everything. You could talk all day long about issues related to prison reform and homelessness or LGBTQ or anything else. All day long, we can debate. But if I sit down and hear someone's story, I'm done. I'm like, I'll become their biggest advocate. I just can't handle it. I think it was... Uh, uh, Fred Rogers, he said, you know, something along the lines of don't judge people if you haven't heard their story. You don't really know until you heard their story. Stories have always been the best way to change the world. So it goes without saying, if you've experienced God, if you've experienced injustice, if you've suffered, if you have pain, if you've ever experienced pain and then hope, if, if you have a story, then you have one of the greatest tools you need to change the world. In this case, Moses shares the story, his story, and the people that he's leading, their story, and, 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 and look what happens. This is so great. Jethro, um, the next verse, he says, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel and rescuing them from the hands of the Egyptians, which in and itself is kind of like a good thing because you tell people good things that are happening in your life and they're not always delighted. Sometimes they're jealous. So like slightly annoyed that good things aren't happening to them. But no, he's like, he's delighted. He's like, this is I'm so glad to hear this. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. He says, now I know. I didn't before. Jethro, father-in-law Moses, didn't know. He's like, there's a lot of gods to choose from. This is the ancient world, lots of gods to choose from. We've narrowed it down a lot in, two, you know, 6,000 years. There's only a few that people tend to fall towards. Back then, lots of them. And he says, I didn't know. But now I know, hearing this personal account from somebody who's trustworthy, now I know, this God, this is, I want to be a part of what this God is doing. Think about how prof- pro- profound this is. Jethro, his father-in-law, he didn't experience slavery in Egypt. 
He didn't experience the crossing of the Red Seas. He, he wasn't delivered. He was camping out in Midian. Fine. He simply heard about it. And that was enough. And even though he hadn't personally experienced the story, he got to share in the salvation that the story was all about. And look what he does next. Next verse, he says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. He offers a sacrifice on the altar. This is like the original altar call. He says, I want, I want to be a part of what this God is doing. I hadn't experienced this God myself, but I want to be a part of what I hear this God is doing. He's changed. You know, the Israelites would go on and have major wars and bloodshed between the Israelites and the Midianites. They would become enemies. But before they ever became enemies, they were brothers. Right here, Moses and Jethro. He heard the story of God, and he wanted to be a part of it. You know, we can almost end here. That's how we started. We said God changed the world by changing individuals. Moses shares his testimony about how God, you know, delivered him, the foreigner. God helped him, and so then Jethro's life has changed. And if that happens enough, there's this ripple effect, and the world has changed. It wouldn't be a bad place to end. I think it's where a lot of us end up ending. It's pretty typical of the Christian church to just end there and say, hey, you know what? One person changed. That's what it's about. But here's what's so great about this story and maybe not for your lunch schedule. The story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Um, so I just want to look very briefly. Day after, what's going to happen next? I'm going to read it. It's a, it's a nice chunk, but we'll get to it. It says, the next day, so this is the day after this conversion experience, this testimony, all this sort of stuff. The next day, Moses took his seat as the judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is it uh, that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all of these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between parties and inform them of God's decrees. And instructions. So in other words, Moses at this point, he's delivered the people. He feels called by God. God, God visited him in a bush, okay? It was on fire. So he, he's clearly a big deal. And he says, people need my advice. And so all of the people are lining up for him to make decisions. Which, friends, is not a good idea. Now, to be fair, Moses, he had told God at the beginning he was a bad candidate. Okay, so, and he didn't go to seminary for this. He didn't go to college. There was no leadership seminars. There was no books on, like, how to be a better leader. None of that exists. This is very primal, ancient world. So none of that exists. So he's doing the best that he can. Now, Jethro, probably because he's a foreigner to this community. He's an outsider. So he has a different perspective. He's experienced life differently. He sees it. And look what he says, verse 17. He says, Mother, Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. Jethro's like, look, look, I know that I'm new here, and I just, you know, the altar call was just yesterday, but what you're doing, it doesn't, it's not going to work. You're going to, this whole thing that God is doing is going to fall apart if you don't change something, which is kind of bold. So Jethro, he's going to give some advice to Moses. 
And it's probably the best advice Moses could get. And it's one of the, 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 the most, what's really cool about this is one of the only places I know in the Bible where an outsider to the faith speaks to the leader who had been called by God and gave them advice, and it was actually implemented. And it was like good advice. So it's like a really kind of a unique story because Jethro, he's a Midianite. He's not even, he's kind of an Israelite now because he sacrificed, you know, a sacrifice to God. But, but he's a bit of an outsider. And he speaks into Moses and he says this. He says, teach them his decrees, God's decrees and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Then he says, but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. Make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, which I'm like, you know, he knows who he's talking to. He's like, if you do this, you know, assuming that's God's will, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. He He says this, and it's the last lesson for today. God changes the world when people get organized. Here's his advice. He says, teach, teach the principles. You can't make every decision. Just teach the principles. What are the principles that guide our community? Jethro doesn't even know what the principles are. I mean, he just showed up yesterday. But he's like, you've got some principles. Teach them. And then select leaders. Make sure they know the principles. And they can live it out. And then create systems to support those leaders. So when things are too difficult for them or they can't decide, like you create these systems. And, and he says, you do that, it's going to be a lot better. I want to suggest that every significant movement that has changed the world, whether it's government or a particular cause or a church, it's effective because it was well organized. And it was likely organized on principles really similar to this. You know, you might hear of the, the boycotts, uh, uh, when they boycotted the bus system after Rosa Parks, or you might hear about the college sit-ins or anything during the civil rights movement. But what you often don't hear is the massive amount of training and even preaching that went in to teach people how to do nonviolent uh, protest. Like, they had, there was classes where this was explained, and you, you don't hear about all the phone calls and, um, you know, faxes and uh, letters that were sent to keep everyone organized, the massive amount of administrative work that went into a movement like that, or any movement. I'm convinced that the world will change for the better or for the worst based on who is best at organizing. The best organized group of people will win every time, whether you're talking about MLK or Hitler, John Wesley or Stalin. They, they accomplished what they were able to accomplish because they just lived into, like, this really simple principle of you have this principles, whether good or bad. We, we kind of say, like, if the principles are good, we say it's discipleship. If it's bad, we call it brainwashing. But it's the same idea, friends. You're, invest, you're convincing somebody of something. They then convince you invest in somebody. They invest in somebody else, and, and it goes down the line. And hopefully, we're engaged in a movement that's actually good. <laughs> I would say to you, friends, that you're a part of a movement, that there are people and there are messages that are impacting you more than part of a more that our world of social media and 24 news cycles, that you are a part of a movement. And there are people higher up in that movement that have a particular message 
to communicate to you, and you're being influenced by it. And you should come to terms. You should really wrestle with who's influencing me, where is it coming from, and where is it headed, and do I even want to be a part of it? And can I really live differently, even if everyone else around me has signed on? Can I be different? Or is that too scary? Is that too hard? If you go back to the beginning of the story, Moses, he had a story to share. He shared it with Jethro. Jethro's life is changed. But Jethro then, he goes to the altar. He joins the community, which puts him right there with Moses as every single person is lined up talking to him. And Jethro, because his life had been changed and he's there, he says, here's what you need to do. You're doing it all wrong. Do you see what happened? We invest in someone and their life changes. What we often forget is now that they're in our community, our community changes too in ways that never changed possible if we wouldn't have reached out. So yeah, it starts with individual people's hearts being changed, but then like Jeffro's case, those individual people can change the system, the way in which we organize ourselves. And I think this is something Christians often get wrong. A lot of Christians, especially in particular branches of American Christianity, will say that it's primarily a heart issue. I don't, you, you can think of probably conversations that you've heard this. If people change, the world will change. But I want to suggest something rather bold, that you could have a nation full of well-intentioned, nice people, but if the systems in place, the way in which we organize ourselves as a country, as a city, as a church, that if the systems that are in place for building that community for making decisions, for handling conflict, if they are unhealthy or broken, it doesn't matter how nice the individual is. The system will hurt people. Justice will not be accomplished. And the world will not become a better place. How we organize ourselves, nation, city, neighborhood, church, it matters. So, friends, we're trying to organize uh, our own little community here. It's a small microcosm of the what we hope is a representation of the kingdom of God. And it's built on principles, principles that you all are informing and that we're still figuring out and putting words to. But we do. We want to be different. We want to live differently. We want to be guided by something that, that the culture just isn't telling us to do, that we want to be some people that are, rely, that are engaged in a mission that's so difficult that we can't do it without God's help. And I believe that God is showing up. And, and as stories begin to surface about how God is working in subtle and even profound ways in people's lives, we need to create space for people to share those stories. And that we think critically about the ways in which we're being influenced and the ways that we influence each other. So over the next two weeks, we're going to continue in this story of God. We'll pick up where we left off, and then we'll breeze very quickly through many, many books of the Bible. And we'll find ourselves in the New Testament where we look at another character, the very Son of God, and the strategy, that very similar to what we just talked about here at Moses, the same kind of strategy of investing in people. And then in the following week, we'll spend some time with Paul in the early church. So I hope you'll join us as we continue to explore how to change the world. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you, and we just ask that you would continue to stir within us, that you would help us uh, be bold enough to try something different, to think critically about the ways in which we're being influenced, and that we might invest in other people who can invest in other people.
Lord, I don't know what's going on in, in, in a lot of people's lives, but I know that there are often seasons, and there are certainly even people here who have been hurt, who are struggling, who have their doubts, who have their frustrations, who feel disconnected. And I just ask that you would, that your spirit would show up. That there might be stories that come out of it of how you are able to deliver us. Just like you did Moses, just like you did the people, just like you've been doing since the beginning. Lord, we need you. Help us, Lord, move from lives categorized by bondage and slavery to sin and death to freedom. In Jesus' name we pray.